Hi everyone, it's Allison here. Hiring and retaining talent is at the top of essentially every founder's mind. So lately I've been publishing more frequently about this topic. In December, Carrie Wang, the co-founder and CEO of Searchlight, and I published a conversation about using predictive analytics to understand candidates as whole people and focus recruiting searches on the people who you are most likely to retain. In February, I published a conversation with Tristan Handy, the founder and CEO at DBT Labs, about how he and his team achieved an incredible employee net promoter score of 90, which is basically unheard of, but especially in this talent market, should be every company's aspiration. And today, I'm excited to share with you my conversation with Troy Sultan, co-founder and CEO at Guide. Guide is a candidate experience company, referring to a category of software that hasn't previously existed. Recruiting tech in the past has focused on internal workflows, making it easier for recruiters to reach candidates. But in this market, we need to be thinking about the candidate's perspective above all else. What matters to them in their next job? What information are they seeking about our company? How are they perceiving our company culture through their interactions with our team? And how can we give them visibility into the steps of the recruiting process so that they feel supported each step along the way? Troy is challenging hiring managers and recruiters to shift their mindset to be more other-oriented and even to think of the recruiting process as analogous to a customer sales cycle. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did and feel free to reach out to me with any feedback. Let's dive in. Troy, I am so happy to chat with you today about what you're noticing in the market for hiring candidates and you know, learning a little bit about the best practices that you recommend for founders that are trying to recruit in this environment. You know, we've seen compensation go way up. We've seen founders, I think, try to do all sorts of things to recruit candidates. But you are, you know, as, as the founder of Guide, you're in the thick of figuring this out for a lot of companies. I'm excited for other founders to learn from you. Awesome. We're not only figuring this out alongside of a bunch of awesome partners and customers, but we're figuring it out for ourselves as well. So it's certainly an interesting time. So let's start with the market. What trends are you noticing in terms of recruiting and compensation? While there's a lot going on, I think there's one primary trend that everything else falls out of the bottom of, which is we must acknowledge that we are in a candidate's market. This has changed and been changing for the last several years. And I think that our view is that since the pandemic, this has really tipped. And with both the proliferation of remote work and remote interviewing, among other pre-existing trends, candidates have more optionality than ever. And with that optionality comes power, of course. And this sort of equation that was heavily dominated by the companies having choice has led to the candidates having the majority choice now. And in a lot of ways, Everything must be rewritten once you acknowledge this primary trend, all the way from compensation philosophy to the expectations around time to fill, the expectations around win rates, the level of competition per candidate, and really what table stakes needs candidates have in order to keep you and your company in the consideration set. Have you noticed any benchmarks specifically for how much compensation has gone up or you know, how many more candidates companies are having to interview per candidate that joins? I'm wondering if we can create some boundaries around what the trends are. I don't have specific data around the percent change in compensation, say, though we might be able to slice that up a bit 
by stage. But from the point of view of startups, it's extremely uncommon that we'll see on our behalf or our customers' behalf candidates interviewing for a company without running a process. Given how easy it is to both get interviews because of how many companies are hiring, but there's another piece that I think is not recognized as much, which is how easy it is to take an interview, which is to say, I'm not in an office for the most part, or we're not as much as we used to be. It's not as awkward or challenging to find a conference room. I could just block my calendar and take an interview two times a day in the blank 30 minute gaps that I have on my calendar without anybody noticing. So I'm much more able to operate in my own privacy and therefore it's the barrier to exploring is much lower. And so we're seeing candidates stack a lot of these conversations so as to make sure that they get the best vantage point of their options. And so this obviously creates competition around and increasing in compensation. But I do think that the ways that a startup ought to think about competing, especially with offers from larger companies in the competitive set, I think is often not on the axis of compensation, regardless of where the competitive benchmarks are with compensation. Because I think that for two reasons, one is that generally candidates who come for the money will leave for the money. And that as a startup, you really need more missionaries in the early days, at least than mercenaries. And so you will probably always lose to someone on compensation. So the question is, well, then on what axes should I compete as a startup? And we could talk about that. And yes, secondly, I mean, I think I kind of captured both of them there. There's like something about the type of person that is a startup person is probably joining for reasons other than compensation. And so leading with something like compensation versus the things that you uniquely have to offer that say Fang doesn't, those are the things that we want to sort of craft our pitch around to the candidates that we want to sell. On the subject of selling candidates, how do you go about thinking about persuading them to join your company? I love to start from the point of view of myself. And then I sort of work out to some of the other folks on our team today, which is to say, why do I wake up every day and do this? Our time and attention are some of our most precious resources. Like, Why am I persuaded that this is the thing to spend those resources on personally? And that usually gets me like near the mission of the business, of course, as the founder, that's unsurprising. But doing that for like the folks in your periphery on your current team, either surveying them directly or just sitting yourself psychologically in their shoes and asking like, what might be the primary motivator that this person joined, gets you at some of the heart of what is most unique about your company. So the idea, of course, when trying to sell a candidate is to like differentiate. What do we as a startup have a monopoly over? So as to say, we might be one of the very few companies, if not the only one that can offer this specific thing to the right candidate. So I think for startups, especially startups these days that are working on pretty interesting problems, generally speaking, like getting at the real why behind the mission of the business, essentially, and then also the like, often what comes out of that is the process of creation. So we're getting to build things from scratch rather than like inherit and optimize things. And these are couple traits as just examples that most startups can like go one or two levels deeper into the specifics there and have a very unique value proposition for a candidate who's looking for those things. And once that candidate is, is found, which is maybe another challenge to think through how to go about finding those people, I think the option set from the point of view of that candidate becomes both more limited and you become much more appealing. So as to say, you know, the old marketing adage is like, if you're talking to everybody, you're talking to no one. Applying that from the point of view of what you have to sell, be willing to weed out the 90% that don't want the specifics, the real specifics of what you have to find the 10% that are enamored by it. I imagine that 
to your point, there are some companies that might find it really easy to sell candidates based on the mission and values of their company. There are others that you know might sell based on their culture and the enjoyment of working there. There are others that theoretically might be able to sell based on this is not a chaotic place to work. I, I guess that's related to you know number mm-hmm. two, but I imagine that given how burnt out so many people are in our economy right now, you know, the thought of working in a place that feels stable where the hours are not super long, you know, might be appealing to some. So those are just a few selling points it sounds like a company might have. Do you think one of those is a winning strategy or does it really just depend on the company and what they have to offer? I tend to be in the camp of the latter. I think you can maybe break the problem down into two components, which is like figuring out who we are as a company authentically and then figuring out how to express that. And then I feel like the more and the earlier and with the more transparency we express it, the better the like that serves as a filtering mechanism for the people who want that thing. And so I don't know, maybe a an overplayed example here is a company like maybe Bridgewater, who's like notorious for like being an idea meritocracy, as they say, and having sort of scorecards or batting averages for each person at the company and then cutting the bottom 10%. I don't know how true these things are, but so goes the folklore. They still recruit and recruit well. And the reason is that they find and attract the people that are competitive enough so as to desire an environment like that. They desire that environment. And they probably won't work well in a environment that's more sort of typically focused on work-life balance so or something in that realm. I think that whatever it is you are, there is no value judgment on it. And there won't be from the right candidates. The, the key is figuring out what that is. What are those things that you value? Call it the company values, call it the things that get most people excited on a day-to-day or would describe as the most pleasant thing about working there. Whatever that is, whether it's we work harder than anybody else, we work 80 hour weeks and we're proud of that. Or whether it's, you know, we do the opposite. We work, you know, this is a marathon and we have a lot of fun and enjoyment and we play the long game with a lot of trust that that will be more sustainable. There's so many people with so many different preferences. The key will just be finding people who align. I think the wrong way to think about it, where we see a lot of startups take shortcuts and often end up in a really expensive proposition is trying to express themselves or position their company in a way that isn't authentic to how they actually are. So if a candidate were to get curious in your example about the work-life balance or to not get curious and, and wait to find out what it is on the other side, right? The onus in a lot of ways, and it's in the company's best interest, I would say, to be hyper-transparent really early in the process about what is true about it, that the candidate's going to find out at the 30-day mark, or maybe the one-day mark, or certainly the 90-day mark. Because what you don't want is a misalignment of expectations. You don't want to spend all this time and energy bringing somebody into the company. And from their point of view, providing information that leads to a life decision for this person and realize that they, 30 days in, bought something that was different than what they had expected. And that's going to cause you to feel the same way, which is this person isn't aligned with one of these really important facets of our culture. And this, uh, we know how these things tend to end. They're more expensive than, you know, having to interview a handful of more candidates to find the right fit. Are there certain ways in which you need to sell candidates differently in different stages of the recruiting process? I think so. And I, I also think this is changing a little bit. The sort of old way was to increase the level of effort and sell this like persuasion piece later in the process. So this would often come at the offer stage where you then open up a lot of time and 
put a lot of energy into getting the candidate the information they need to make the decision and sharing much more openly about what it is that they're, so to speak, buying with this decision. I think the big change with the candidates being more in power now that is both effective and we're seeing the most effective recruiting teams employ is shifting that up earlier in the process. So a lot of this might be spending the first few calls or interviews with a candidate actually entirely focused on their curiosities before you even do an assessment, which changes a lot of the dynamics and it changes the way that you think about cost and timing of the recruiting process. But at least we would argue from what we see in our customer base, opening space at the very beginning of the process to at least understand what the candidate is optimizing for. What are the candidate's needs? What is the criteria upon which they're going to choose their next job? And even if you don't spend time all at the beginning to give them the information they need to assess, you can instead give them some reciprocity at every step thereafter so as to make the entire process more of a two-way street. And there are a lot of tactical ways that you can do this with specific calls, with a specific agenda, with specific collateral that recruiting teams are starting to adopt a lot more. That's obviously a space that we spent a lot of time in, but there are ways to give candidates more opportunity to share what they need early so you can price it in to the process. And in the end, what you get is the untraditional view of selling, which we would argue is the more modern way to sell, which is it's not a game of persuasion. It's a game of transparency. And it's a game of communication where you're sort of expressing, you're feeding this person who has needs and desires, high fidelity information about the thing they're buying, and then letting them make a decision whether it aligns with their needs, not trying to put spin on it. It's very counterintuitive, but healthy to give a candidate a lot of information at the beginning of the process and have them decide to opt out because this isn't for them. The reason that's counterintuitive is because you've lost the opportunity to sort of sell. You might feel misunderstood or not fully seen, but the reality is this candidate knows themselves better than you will ever. And so as long as you're providing them accurate information, they're probably the best person to tell you whether they were likely to drop off after investing another 10 hours in the process. And so you can actually shortcut your way to the better conversations where your time is better spent. Such a great point. I remember a couple of years ago when the headhunters would reach out to me and they would say, well, it undisclosed companies looking for XYZ person. And you might have to wait. Their expectation would be that you have a couple of meetings before you even find out like what their revenue level is. And nowadays folks are, are happy to send like, yo, our latest pitch deck or really deep information earlier on, I think, to recruit the right people. So I, th I think you make a really interesting analogy as well to sales in a way, right? In sales, it's very common. It's normal to have a discovery call at the beginning of a sales process to understand What's the customer's context and what do they need? What are their problems? And then you talk about how you can help solve them. I love the idea of having a discovery conversation early and then kind of infusing that discovery across the stages of recruiting, as, as you said. I know you've also given thought in general to other ways in which sales enablement might inform recruiting enablement, like how recruiters should be able to do their jobs. And you know, there's been a lot written recently about how tough it is to be a recruiter right now. You know, a lot of them, I think, are facing a really different set of circumstances and having to switch the way they do their jobs in a pretty abrupt way. Like, what are the ways in which you think founders can enable their recruiters to be more effective in their roles? The sales analogy, I think, 
goes pretty far. And I think it relates to the top of the call where we talked about this primary shift, this trend where the candidate is gaining optionality. It starts to look a lot more like a consumer looking at multiple products and picking the best one or a company looking at multiple vendors and picking the best one. In a lot of ways, this is kind of what candidates are doing. They're not necessarily in a rush because they're not in a terrible situation, but they're looking to run towards something better and they're taking their time to do that thoughtfully. And the companies that sort of take the most effort at giving them the requisite information to make that decision for the candidate the least risky, the most convicted, the most informed, those are often the companies that win today. And it's again, it's very counter to the way that we used to do this, but there's so many ways that we can learn from what salespeople and marketers do from the very top of the funnel all the way through to the post-purchase, really. And if you just look at what sales and marketing is doing today from like building specific landing pages for specific segments of the market, you might be able to draw an analogy of say building specialized careers pages for specific roles or domains, right? You might have a different careers page for your engineering candidates to to read than your sales candidates, right? This makes some sense. But if you go down the funnel, right, as salespeople and marketers know, you need to keep informing, you need to keep educating, you need to keep knocking down objections from the prospect's point of view at every conversation. You need to provide value, in other words. And so this doesn't need to take a sophisticated form. This could be in just creating space in each interview to make sure that the candidate has time to express their needs in conversation. So make this a two-way street. It could be dedicating the first call to understanding what those needs are up front, as you mentioned. I love the discovery analogy. And it can be about creating artifacts like a salesperson would use collateral or one pagers or links to specific web pages that speak to a specific use case for a product that that customer needs solved. You might again imagine what a company can do to document various things that the company has to offer at the cultural level or even at the specific role level. Who are the people that you'd be working with if you accepted this job? Who are the people that you're going to be meeting with throughout the interview process? What are the bios and backgrounds of the people who are literally going to be interviewing you in this next conversation you're walking into? What are all of the steps in this interview process? Where am I in those steps? How long should I expect this entire process to take? What are the next steps after we finish this conversation? These are all questions that bog candidates down from making the key decision in the end, which is, am I going to get the value that I hope out of this decision? And so the more you can eliminate the cognitive sort of overhead of candidates sort of spinning their wheels, trying to like pry for this information or ask for it, delivering it proactively just brings a lot of speed and clarity to the process for both sides. This, this really is a scenario where by helping the candidate, you're helping yourself. And I think that that's like a really important part to stress. But from a collateral standpoint, you can be very cheap. This can be a follow-up email. This can be 10 minutes at the end of every call to make space. It can be more sophisticated, which is the world that we play in, which is creating very specific collateral for every department and every stage within the interview process for the candidates within that department. And so for engineering candidates at the onsite stage, they might get access to a specific product roadmap that the engineering team is working on in the quarter that is the priority set of the team they would join and really getting a a look through that so they can put themselves into the role and imagine whether this is the right fit for them. This could be for a sales candidate reading through or watching a recorded demo when they get to a certain stage of the interview process so they can, again, put on the hat of being in the role. And in a lot of ways, this seems like 
a high cost. And it is, it's hard to do. You need to think about setting this up up front. You have to invest some time in building this collateral. But for one, it's quite repeatable once you do. Two, you'll notice if you look at your, your recruiting team's time spend, you're often reactively doing these same things when asked. And so only the candidates that have the sort of wherewithal or, or audacity or confidence to ask get this um, and benefit from it. But two, you're, you're having to often spend even more time doing it reactively in a way that doesn't scale. So doing it upfront, designing this sort of drip of collateral that will be shared at various stages enables you to both save time later and do this very quickly, move people through fast, but also provide this to the candidates who otherwise wouldn't have asked or felt comfortable asking, which creates a very much like a wow experience. And it also, again, continues to help the candidate self-filter back in for the next step or self-filter out before the next step, both of which is a win for you. Love that. I'd love to talk about the details of compensation since it's rapidly evolving. I mean, there are questions that come to mind like, what benchmark percentage do you anchor to? Do you anchor to a nationwide benchmark or a geography specific one? Do you pay differently for remote work? How do you think about making these basic, or actually complex, but maybe basic compensation design decisions? I think these are critical and there won't be probably ever one size fits all. So a lot of this is, it's called compensation philosophy for a reason. So one should feel comfortable coming up with what they feel is best based on the data they have and evolving it over time without sort of holding themselves to the standard that there is a right way for one. This will evolve with the market and, and your own philosophy. But I think that defining a philosophy up front saves a tremendous amount of stress and energy for everybody involved in the recruiting process later, including the candidate. And the key starting point with compensation philosophy, I believe, is deciding what is the peer group that you want to compete against. So for example, for us at Guide, we've decided that we want to compete with companies that are two stages ahead of us, which would be around the Series B. And so we've picked a way to define that cohort. Why is that? Well, primarily, those are the folks that we want to recruit. And it's important to us that if we bring folks in from one to two stages ahead of us, that we're not only offering them things that those companies ahead of us can't offer, like the ability to sort of build a function from scratch or work on a mission that's, um, or that has higher impact on the mission or is closer to our end users or customers, et cetera, but that they also don't have to take a hit on compensation. They don't have to say, oh, you know, I'm excited about all these things, but I have to take a pay cut. However, this like sales and marketing again, and thinking about positioning, it's a good analogy because like any product, like you want to figure out where in the landscape you sit, who are you competing against and who are you not? and helping the customer understand that. And I think similarly, when you define your competitive peer group, you are saying just as importantly, who are you not competing against on comp? And so for us, if we're competing against a half million dollar a year offer for a mid-level or senior level engineer from one of the FANG companies say, we know we're not trying to win that candidate on compensation. And we are willing to lose that candidate on compensation, but we're still going to sell on the dimensions that we believe we can uniquely offer. What we don't want still is to win a candidate at the Series B on compensation, but what we do want is not to lose them on compensation. So thinking about what is your algorithm, regardless of what it is, helps you understand the efficacy of your process. It also helps you design your process. So I would argue that there's some foundational things, compensation philosophy as one of the most crucial that need to be in place before you design your hiring process. And I would say that in my view, 
the most important product that a founder will ever build is their hiring process. And there's obviously a, a lot baked into that. But I think that if there is not buy-in from the top down, it will forever be hard to make hiring a competitive advantage. And so in today's market, you know, one could decide for themselves whether they need hiring to be a competitive advantage. But I find it hard to see a way to do that if this isn't done thoughtfully and with a lot of rigor from the top down. All right, Choi, final question. What is you know, a last tip that you would provide for founders about how to recruit well? Maybe the last tip is in service of trying to give some maybe less shared or counterintuitive insights to at least provoke thought. Think about back to this product analogy with the hiring process. Think about how you wouldn't want to bring new users into a funnel, a product funnel that was pretty leaky, where most people weren't going through the conversion. Our tendency is in recruiting is, for whatever reason, almost always our intuitions tell us to put more people in the top of the funnel. I can't tell you how many times they would hear this. I would argue about starting with the actual efficacy of the funnel itself before you really start focusing on the top of the funnel. So I would ask myself, how effectively are we bringing candidates from the first interview to offer accept and work on iterating that part of the product, so to speak, before I move to strategies at the sourcing side of the funnel, or at least putting most of my energy there. So my question is, you know, how effectively can you win the candidate that you want before you can find more candidates that you want. Love that. Troy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing all your wisdom with founders. I'm sure they'll really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It's fun.